If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 10? Revelation chapter 10, and we'll read the chapter. It's a short chapter, 1 through 11. Revelation chapter 10, and this morning we want to consider together God's judgments, the judgments that we find in the book of Revelation. So chapter 10 is kind of a launching pad backwards to chapter 6 and forwards to chapter 16. Uh, So we will look at God's judgments. So verse 1, John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head and his face like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Many commentators and interpreters think that this is Jesus, but uh, there's no indication in the book of Revelation anywhere that Jesus is described as an angel. So I do not take this to be a reference to the Son of God, even though you have face shining, shining like the sun and pillars of fire for his legs. This, I think, is just a description of a very mighty angel, as verse 1 says. So, it says, verse 2, the angel, he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, John says, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it and that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And just thus far, may God bless to us the reading of his word. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, We have sung your praises this morning. We have exalted you. We have lifted you up in our minds and in our hearts and with our voices. Now we come to your word and we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to grasp and to understand this book that we have been considering together. Thank you for it. Thank you for its study. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God this morning. Jesus shall come, he shall come in great power and glory to take us to himself, and he shall judge the world. So we pray, Father, that he who will judge the quick 
and the dead shall speak to us this morning through the Word, by the Spirit, that we might live our lives according to your Word in this world as we face the many things that assault us and trouble us day by day. Help us, we pray, then, to be a faithful people, to be a godly people, a holy people. We pray your blessing now upon your Word and the preaching of it. Stir us up, we pray, encourage us in our faith. We commend ourselves to you. Ask all of these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. It is no uh, easy task or simple task to speak about the judgments of God. Uh, the idea that you could just casually or in an off-handed manner try and describe what the judgments of God are like is something that needs to be considered quite seriously by all of us. Every one of us, if we are Christians this morning, is fully aware that God judges sin, that God does not tolerate sin, that God reacts to sin and God acts against sin, that God is displeased with any sin and with all sin, with sin that is occurring right now around us in this city and around this country, around the world, and perhaps even in our hearts this morning. God is displeased. God reacts to sin. The book of Revelation we have been considering in very broad perspective. We have been looking at some of the great themes of the book of Revelation. And this morning we come to this theme which occupies a large part of the book, this theme of God's judgment. So I want to take you to a number of things here. A large portion, as I said, of Revelation figures or centers on this whole theme of judgment, of judgment that comes from God. In fact, we are introduced to this judgment of God and from God when John is told to write to the seven churches. And in speaking to the seven churches, our Lord Jesus Christ delivers on a number of occasions, as I will try to show you, a judgment against those churches. So for example, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 5 to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, look, if you don't repent, you've You've lost your first love. If you don't repent, he says, and return or do the first works, then I'm going to come among you, he says, and I'm going to remove your lampstand, meaning the presence of Christ, the church, as it found in Ephesus. I'm going to come and I'm going to do something that will take away the church, the witness, the testimony in Ephesus. That's a judgment. That's a judgment from Jesus. You'll notice that the judgment of Jesus to the church is couched in language of repentance. That if you repent, you avoid the judgment. And so he urges them, those Ephesian Christians, Jesus as the Lord, Jesus as the head of their church, the head of all churches, in a spiritual judgment that, he would, that they would avoid that if they repent. Or take chapter 2 and verse 16, the church at Pergamum. Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon, he says, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And in particular, he speaks about those who hold to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. And whatever that group 
was uh, bringing to the church and teaching in the church their false ideas, their false doctrine. Jesus says, if you don't deal with that, if you don't repent, then I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with that situation. Or, if you look at Thyatira, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's nothing but a form of judgment, isn't it? If you don't deal uh, with these sins, church at Thyatira, and they apparently have refused to deal with that, Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge. And if you go to chapter 3 and look at verse 3, the church at Sardis, he says, Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So there's no question you have these these judgments, right? And of course, the great judgment is to be found in the last church, the seventh church of Laodicea, that church that's lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Jesus said He wanted to spew them out of His mouth because of their lukewarmness. It says in verse 19 of chapter 3, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You notice how much how often the word repent occurs in the seven churches. It's only the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia, those two faithful churches, that avoid the judging hand of Jesus. So Jesus promises to the churches, to believers, to the church at Ephesus or Pergamum or Thyatira or Sardis and Laodicea, He promises that if they do not deal with their church, that then He would come among them in judgment. So we see from chapter 2 and chapter 3, that Jesus certainly promises judgment to the church. To the church. One of the interesting things about judgment is that we can avoid judgment from God at any time if we were to engage in self-judgment. The judging of ourselves. And if that is not done, then Jesus promises, it's clear from chapter 2 and 3, that He will come. If you don't deal with your problems, if you don't deal with your situation, I will come among you and I will judge you. Isn't that what the Apostle Peter means in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he says that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God? And if it begins with us, he says, what will be the outcome of all those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if we don't judge ourselves, or like the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And of course the Corinthians would experience the disciplinary judgment of God because of how they were behaving, not only in the church in many things, but particularly also at the Lord's Supper. So as a Christian, I discover that Jesus speaks to me, speaks to us as a church, any church, his church, and says that we must examine ourselves, we must judge ourselves if we wish to avoid the judging hand of Christ. So every Christian knows they must examine themselves. I must look at my life. I must examine it in the light of the Word. I must judge my life. And so too the churches 
must do. And this we discover, as I say, from chapter 2 and chapter 3. But the book of Revelation has a massive section. From chapter 6 all the way through chapter 16, which is occupied with this whole theme of the judgments of Christ, or the judgments of God, dealing with judgment upon the world. So just as we read in chapter 2 and 3 about judgment upon the church, so too we read in this large section broadly, chapter 6 through 16, we read about the judgment of God upon the world. We read about those in a unique and an interesting framework. For example, in Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 through Revelation 8 verse 5, we have the seven seal judgments. You remember that seven sealed scroll in chapter 5 that was given that the Lamb went and took from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne? Only He was found worthy, our Lord Jesus Christ, to open that scroll, seven sealed scroll. And so those seven sealed judgments are what we find in chapter 6 through chapter 8. Then secondly, you discover in chapter 8 verse 6 all the way through chapter 11 verse 19 what we know as the seven trumpet judgments. And then, of course, we go from chapter 15, verse 5, to chapter 16, 21, the seven bowl judgments. So this is a large section that is taken up in the book of Revelation with judgment. From chapter 6 through chapter 16, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. You will notice if you look at chapter 10, which we read, verses 3 and 4, uh, he, when he had called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. So we have no record or understanding of the seven thunders that John heard. Do not write that down, John. So we have the, the seal judgments we have the trumpet judgments, we have the bowl judgments, and then chapter 10 talks about seven thunders, which we take also to be judgments uh, as, uh, at the same time. Will you notice in chapter 8, and I want you to just turn there, look at verse 13 of chapter 8. So this is the blowing of the fourth trumpet, and at the end of the fourth trumpet, in verse 13 of chapter 8, last verse of chapter 8, then I looked... And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now we all know, whenever you read, woe, 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 that that is a certain pronouncement of judgment. The word woe stipulates the judgment of God. This is the language that Jesus used in Matthew 23 when he pronounced judge, a series of judgments against the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers when he says, woe to you, woe to you. And seven occasions Jesus used that refrain, woe to you. Here we find three woes that obviously in verse 13 of chapter 8 are connected to the remaining trumpet judgments. Number five, number six, and number seven, trumpet, the three woes that remain, that are about to occur. So notice that the fifth angel, in verse 1 of chapter 9, he blows his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And it goes on to describe what he did, all the way through verse 11. 
And at the, in verse 12, it says, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. The unleashing of the bottomless pit and the dragon's forces uh, upon the world. And John writes in verse 12 of chapter 9 that that's the first woe, the fifth trumpet that has been sounded that was to go and affect all the worth. And then the sixth angel in chapter 9 verse 13, he sounds his trumpet, right? And he, that trumpet sound goes all the way to chapter 11 and verse 14. And so if you go to chapter 11 verse 14, it says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And it is reasonable to assume, isn't it, that if the first woe is the fifth trumpet and the second woe is the sixth trumpet, that the third woe in the series remaining is obviously the seventh trumpet that is about to sound. So the seventh trumpet is in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 11. And it might be helpful if we read that. Chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. We read that in Psalm 2, right? The nations rage against the Lord and is anointed. The nations have begun to rage, oh, sorry, have raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. And that, I think, uh, as I said to you, is reasonable to assume that if the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet are the first and second woe, that the seventh trumpet here is obviously the conclusion or the third woe to sound. Now, you all know that in between uh, getting to chapter 15 and 16, you have chapters 11, I mean chapters 12, 13, and 14, and those chapters, of course, describe the introductions to the conflict that exists between the dragon and the lamb. Or to put it another way, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, they reflect the rise of the beast and the persecution of the saints. So chapter 12, 13, and 14, after the seventh trumpet has sounded, take us to other events that are situated to explain certain things, namely the beast rising, chapter 13, John says, I saw a beast standing on the seashore, remember, and uh, the persecution of the saints at the same time. All of that leads us to chapter 16. So when we get to chapter 16, if you look at chapter 16, verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Don't neglect that statement, right? So with the seven final plagues, judgments, which are the last, the wrath of God is finished. And of course, go pour out, he says, in verse, six, verse 1 of chapter 16, I heard a loud voice 
from the temple. This is, sorry, that was chapter 15. Chapter 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the seven angels now go with their seven bowls, chapter 16, and they pour out these bowls upon the earth. And I think that probably takes us or includes chapter 17 and chapter 18, which is the destruction of the great harlot in chapter 17 and the fall of Babylon the Great in chapter 18. Those all, all those chapters have to do from chapter 6 through chapter 18 with destruction and with the judgment of God. So why chapter 10? Why chapter 10? Well, in one sense, I chose chapter 10, looked at chapter 10, because it's kind of stuck in the middle of these judgments that you read, right? These passages, kind of as an intervening vision or commission that is given to John, who's told about this little scroll that he sees in the hand of the angel, told to go and take it and then eat it. And when he eats it, it has an effect upon him. And then he is kind of commissioned, you must again prophesy to many nations, peoples, tribes, and kingdoms, and so on. So, having looked at chapter 10, it was verse 7 of chapter 10 that caught my attention. So look at verse 7 of chapter 10. We know that the, the verse 6 ends that there would be no more delay, verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. So I now know the time frame, right? In chapter 10, that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. You could, by the way, if you want to read the seventh trumpet, go to chapter 11. All right, and you look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. The third woe, as we talked about, there were loud voices in heaven. So, notice, will you, with me, how important the seventh trumpet is. Okay, first of all, in chapter 10, verse 7, the mystery of God is fulfilled. And then when you go to chapter 11, and verse 15 through 19, which is the blowing of the seventh trumpet judgment of God... First of all, notice the declaration in verse 15. What is the declaration? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So what happens when the seventh trumpet blows His trumpet, right? It is the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. What a statement. What a statement, by the way, in the middle of the trumpet, in the middle of the judgments, because the bold judgments are still beyond, right? So notice the response to that declaration in chapter 11, verse 16, through verse 18. First of all, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. So what's the first response to a declaration like that, that Jesus reigns? Worship, Right? The 24 elders, probably representative of the church, falls down and worships God. But there are three parts to this response. First is in verse 17, I want you to notice that the reign of the king has begun. We give thanks to you, God, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. So the first response 
to that declaration is that the king has taken power and begun to reign. And then if you look at the first part of verse 18, secondly, the nations are under the wrath of God. They rage, they fight against God, they wage war against Christ, but your wrath came, that's the first part, and then the dead, the time for the dead to be judged is going to take place as well. So the the second response to the declaration that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, which reminds you, doesn't it, of the great stone that was cut out in Daniel's vision that destroyed, uh, you remember, the last kingdom of uh, the feet, the iron made of clay and so on, uh, the kingdom of Christ coming and reigning. And so the nations are under His wrath and the dead are to be judged The third part is the reward in verse 18b, the reward given to the servants of God for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name. So notice, the reign of the king has begun, the nations are under judgment, wrath has come, and the reward is going to be given when the dead who are to be judged, there will be rewards given to the servants and the saints of God. And there's a response, isn't there? Verse 19 is heaven's response. God's temple opens, the ark of his covenant was seen, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, which is just simply the promise that this will take place. Notice verse 16 in chapter 11. We give thanks, sorry, uh, Verse 15, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. You have the spread of the kingdom, and you have the supremacy of the kingdom. The spread of the kingdom has overtaken the kingdoms of this world. Verse 15 of chapter 11, And the supremacy of the kingdom, He shall reign forever and ever. And what is that? Isn't that simply the fulfillment of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ? who must sit at the right hand of God, Psalm 110 verse 1, until all of his enemies are put under his feet. So Jesus is reigning, and as he reigns, his enemies one by one are being overcome and overthrown in his, the establishment of his reign. So when Jesus came, died on the cross, his incarnation, if you like, his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead, his exaltation to the Father's right hand, is simply the demonstration that the kingdom of Christ has come and that the world and its kingdoms are now under the kingdom of Christ and his rule and that at the consummation they will experience the final judgment of God upon them. All his enemies ultimately will be under his feet. We certainly can include, by the way, chapter 11, verses 15 and 19, through 19, which is the seventh angel sounding his trumpet. You can connect that, of course, back to chapter 10, right? Verse 7, in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel. So when the, kingdom of the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of Christ, then, according to 10, verse 7, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. And what is a mystery? A mystery in the Bible, whenever you read about a mystery, is something that is previously concealed or unknown and then is made known or revealed. So the incorporation, for example, of the Gentiles into the people of God, the one people of God, 
That incorporation of the Gentiles is said to be a mystery, right? In Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 16. It was not known clearly in the Old Testament, but certainly the promise of the incorporation of Gentile believers into the family of God is in the Old Testament, but you only see it clearly in the New Testament. It was a mystery that was concealed, but now has been made known. So a mystery in the Bible is not something that is kept secret. It's not something mysterious. It is something that at one time is not clear and made known, but exists, and then at another time is revealed and is understood and made known. So the seventh trumpet sounding in Revelation chapter 11, based on Revelation chapter 10 verse 7, is that the wrath of God has come, that the end has come, the time for judging the dead has come, the time for the nations who rage against the Lord and to be judged has come, because the kingdom of Christ has come and overcome the kingdoms of this world. You might say to me, what does that have to do with anything? Well, don't forget that in chapter 16, which is five chapters away, you still have to deal with the bowl judgments, right? If the kingdom of Christ has come with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and the, the nations who raged against Christ have be, are being judged, and the time for the dead is coming to be judged, and the rewarding of the saints, how do you deal with the bold judgments of chapter 16 that are still to come? Well, the answer to that is simply that they're not chronological, these judgments, but concurrent. That they occur at the same time, run in tandem together, and you might say, well, prove that. And I'm going to try and prove that to you this morning. So, will you go back to chapter 6? I just love all these First seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal, fifth seal, or first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet, and so on, right? It can get real confusing. So, the, the sixth seal in verse 16 of chapter 6. Well, verse 12. We start in verse 12. So, he opened the sixth seal. This is chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, that's Christ. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the earth fell to the, fell, stars of the sky sorry, fell to the earth as the fig tree shreds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that has been rolled up, and every mountain and island is removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? So the sixth seal, seal judgment is said to be the wrath of of the Lamb, and is said to be the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And certainly all the judgments, the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments, are, of course, the unfolding, the outpouring of the judgment of God upon the world. So, when you look at the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments, you will be amazed to discover in incredible similarities between some of those things, those judgments, Whenever they occur, they're all very similar in their application. 
They represent all of them the judgment of God against an unbelieving world throughout this age, throughout the church age. So there is progression in one sense. For example, seals, trumpets, bowls. And there is a pattern, isn't there? There's seven of each of them. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. By the way, number seven in the book of Revelation occurs 51 times. That's nearly twice every chapter. Well, that's twice every chapter at least. 51 times the number seven. So it's important. In fact, numbers in the book of Revelation are significant and important. We mustn't ignore them. We must pay attention to them. And with the seventh of each, so when the seventh seal is open, it leads into the first trumpet. And when the seventh trumpet is opened, it's going to lead into the first bowl judgments. So that these bowl judgments are together. Now, if you adopt a futuristic approach, okay, so all of these things are still to come in the future. All 21 judgments, right? Back to back, if you like. Or spread out over time in some chronological sequence. After a so-called rapture, okay, which is nothing less than the second coming of Jesus. But if you're futuristic in interpretation, it's another coming of Jesus in between the first coming and the second coming, a secret rapture of the church from the earth. So all of these judgments have to occur before that the church is taken away, all right? And then, of course, there will be these judgments that will come upon the earth, but the Christians are said to not be on the earth. But these judgments are given to prepare a people for tough times. The seven churches are the recipients of chapter 6 through chapter 16. You can't just take chapter 6 through 16 or even 6 through 18 and put them out of the reach of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, and so on. Can't do that. Jesus is writing to the seven churches. I know that from chapter 22 when it's all about referring back to those seven churches that what John has seen and written is for them and all the churches at the same time. So these judgments are given to prepare God's people, beginning certainly with Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, to live their lives in a history of the world that is filled with tribulation and filled with suffering and difficulty. And let me ask you, are we not suffering as Christians in the world today? Are not Christians persecuted for their faith? Are there not Christians who die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That has been since the beginning that the church of Jesus has been persecuted. So we must not exclude the saints of God, which these passages that we've read this morning talk about. We must not exclude the saints from that kind of time frame. Surely the cry of God's people anywhere and at all times in the world is like the fifth seal judgment, the fifth seal judgment, Revelation 6.10, How long, O Lord, until you will judge? How long, O Lord, until you will judge abortion? How long, O Lord, until you judge unrighteousness? How long until you judge the evil of men? How long until you alleviate our tribulations, our sufferings? How long? That is the cry of God's people. How long? How long? Because you see, the end is not a single event only, but is a, a complex series of events that, are, that began with the incarnation of Jesus and end with the consummation 
of Jesus. And in between the incarnation and the consummation, we live, the saints of God, in every age, subject to the same sufferings, the same tribulations, in the reign of Christ, who is our King, who is our Lord, and the nations rage against us, and the nations rage against Jesus, and God's judgments pour out upon them, and are lavished upon them in time. In other words, Revelation is not just concerned with end-time events, but with events that are particular and necessary for the seven churches to live effective lives, faithful lives, as they face tribulation and suffering from the beast, from the kingdom of the beast, and so on. So, these are not events at the close of history, but these are events within history. And I want to show you that again also. So, let me give you a simple illustration. Revelation 7. So go to Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3. So we're still in the, in the seal judgments. After this, verse 1 of chapter 7, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now why does he say that? Any tree, Right? Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Notice verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, if you would just go back one chapter. Chapter 6, look at verse 12. So notice, when he opened the sixth seal, right, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, suns as black as sackcloth, full moon becomes like blood, stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, sky vanished like a scroll that has been rolled up, and every mountain and islands, island was removed from its place. So surely that is a description of a massive destruction, right? A cosmic destruction of immense proportions, which describes, by the way, a massive destruction to the earth, Sky's gone, mountain, every mountain, notice, every mountain and island gone, removed from its place. So now, how do you have in chapter 7, after this, an instruction to, who have power to the angels over, to harm the earth and the sea? Do not harm the earth or the sea. When you've just experienced in the sixth seal this devastating destruction. This cosmic destruction that we have described, right? So chapter 7 may follow chapter 6 in the visions of John, but it certainly doesn't appear to be in the order of actual events. Let me give you another illustration. Look at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 6. So when the sixth seal is opened, right, the entire cosmos is said to be in trouble. Sun is black, moon is blood, stars fall to the earth, sky vanishes, islands and mountains are gone. But then, if you go to chapter 8, and you look at verse 12 in the fourth trumpet, right? Chapter 8, fourth trumpet says, verse 12, chapter 8, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, 
and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So only here, only one third of sun, moon, and stars are struck with diminished light. So if they are destroyed so cosmically in chapter 6, how can they now be shining and just one third of their light be diminished? Or to put it another way, how can they exist in chapter 8 if they don't exist in chapter 6? Okay. Why? Because it's not chronological. And I wish people would get that in their heads. Right? This is a, an important point to understand. This is not about chronology. This is about a concurrence of events in repetition. Okay? Explaining to us in different forms the apocalyptic visions of the Apostle John. Not some possible chronological sequence from chapter to chapter to chapter to chapter. But simply a, a picture that is put together of a massive picture of the judgment of God against this world. So, that tells me when I read the book of Revelation, which by the way, we, I think we would all agree is a very difficult book to read and to understand, contrary to many people who will say, now Revelation is pretty easy, tells you the future, basic. No, I certainly haven't found that to be the case. Well, that tells me that there is, a, there is an importance that is attached to prophetic revelation, and revelation is a prophecy. John, in fact, is told to prophesy against nations, right, in chapter 10, that it is an important prophetic and apocalyptic literature. So that means I must approach it with particular care. Number one, when I read the book of Revelation, I must read it on the surface of language or on the level of language. What are these words that I read? Sun, black, moon, blood, stars falling to the earth. By the way, if one star fell to the earth, pooh, end of story, right? Stars fall to the earth. And there's more to come, right? So if it's literal, and a literal interpretation leaves you with nothing, right? So we can't go there. So we look at words, first level, right? Second level, I must read it with the visionary experience of John who sees these things. What did John see? And what did John hear? John certainly did not hear when he saw an eagle flying overhead, whoa, 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 that that was the American Air Force. That is not what he saw. He didn't see an aeroplane. And when he looks at horses, right, with smoke coming out of their mouths and that, he's not looking at tanks destroying Russia. All right? It's not what he sees. No, it's not what John sees. John sees, sees this in, in a language from a visionary experience, which he is describing to us. Second level. Third level, we must read the book of Revelation with historical identification. And by that I mean, what do those objects stand for? What do those symbols mean? Can I understand them? Certainly I can understand them because I have the whole Bible to help me understand them. And not only that, but what do they stand for in the vision? And finally, I must recognize that there are many symbols in the book of Revelation which require an understanding and interpretation. What do they mean? John, what does this mean? More particularly, when John writes to the seven churches, what do the seven churches think? Do they go, aha, none of this is for us, so we don't have to worry about it because it's all in the future, right? So, no big deal. We'll just face Nero. We'll deal with the 
beast in our time. But, but all these things here, not for us to worry. In fact, church is gone, supposedly. We don't have to worry about it anyway. Why do we get bent out of shape in the 21st century about what's going to happen on the world when the church is supposedly not even going to be on it? Right? Because we're raptured, supposedly. So if we're raptured and all of this is taking place on the earth, you don't have to worry about a thing. Okay? This is not, not what John sees. Okay? So when John, for example, sees a beast in Revelation 13, I saw a beast, he says, coming up out of the sea, standing on the seashore. What did he see? Did he see some wild, literal animal? Did he see that? He says he saw a beast. But we all know he didn't see a wild, literal animal. He saw a man. Because we later on discover that the beast has a number, and the number is the number of man. And we discover not only that the beast is a man, but the beast is a reference to humanity, and the beast is a reference to a vile kingdom, the kingdoms of this world. So there have been many beasts and many kingdoms that exhibit the same antipathy against Christ and his kingdom that rage against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. All driven by the power of the dragon, Satan himself. So remember, John is a prophet. He's writing to seven churches. And now he's instructed, you'll notice in verse 11 of chapter 10, you must again prophesy. You've already been doing it, John. But you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John is a prophet, by the way, just like Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament. You read the book of Ezekiel, very apocalyptic, strange language, right? You read Ezekiel chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, God says to Ezekiel, take the scroll and eat the scroll and it will be sweet as honey within you. And what was that to Ezekiel? It was just simply the recommissioning of Ezekiel as a prophet because the nations are against you, Ezekiel. Prophesy against the nations. Speak to them. Tell them of my wrath and my judgments that come to them. John, same vision, same idea, same little picture, the scroll that he eats and his honey and bitter is to be a prophet against the nations. You must Again, prophesy about many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. So why is John, like Ezekiel, given this little book, this scroll to eat? What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means he receives for himself the word of God, and then he is to proclaim it. So he receives God's word, and then he is to declare God's word. So the scroll represents the word of God. He receives it, and then he prophesies. He speaks the word of God. There will be two responses, John. It's going to be sweet as honey in your mouth, and it's going to be bitter in your stomach. And what does that mean? Simply means, right, God's word will be received by some. God's word will be rejected by others. And those who receive that word of God will be, like John will receive the word of God, it will be a delight to them. Is not God's word a delight to you when you read it? Isn't it like honey in your mouth? Isn't there a sweetness to God's word that you taste when you read it and you enjoy it just like you enjoy your oatmeal or your cereal or whatever it is? There's something about God's word that is for the believer that's precious to us. It's like honey. But the contents, while speaking of grace and salvation, at the same time contain, contain the contents of wrath and judgment against peoples and nations and kingdoms. 
So when John reads on the one hand, it's sweet to him because it's about salvation and grace, but then there's another aspect of the Word of God that is, that is judgment and, and wrath that is going to be poured out and makes it bitter to his stomach. That's just what the symbol is conveying to us. Now listen, dear congregation. The message of salvation has no meaning, no meaning, if the judgment of God is not a reality. Salvation means nothing if there's no such thing as judgment. And isn't that what happened at the cross? The judgment of God fell upon His Son. That has no meaning if there's no provision of salvation. Thank God, out of the salvation and or the judgment of Christ comes the salvation of God. And so you see this connection, right? So John, in verse 11, is to speak God's word to peoples, nations, languages, and kings. He is to declare God's wrath against them and their sin, just like Jeremiah was said to be appointed a prophet to the nations, to declare God's judgment against them. So John has a message for God's people, the seven churches. What is that message? Stand firm in your faith. And if you lived in the third century, what would the message be to you? Stand firm in your faith. And if you lived in the ninth or the thirteenth century, what would it be? Stand firm in your faith. If you live today, right now, in this world, what is God's message to His church? Stand firm in your faith, right? In your salvation. Keep on believing. Judge yourself. Judge your sins. Live in this world for Christ. But when Jesus speaks to the world, He speaks wrath to them. He speaks judgment to them. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all speak of God's judgment and His wrath. So don't imagine for a moment that the wrath of God is only for the end. You know how I know it's not? Because Romans chapter 1 Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So when someone today suppresses the truth, guess what's happening? The wrath of God is being revealed against them from heaven. And how do I know that that is actually taking place? Because three times in Romans chapter 1, from verse 18 through verse 32, God gave them up. God gave them what they wanted. God gave them their sin. And when He does that, He gives them His wrath and He gives them His judgment. So right now, today, in the world, no matter where in the world, the nations that rage against Christ and His kingdom, God is judging them. In fact, we believe, don't we, that before we became Christians, we were under the judgment of God. We were under the wrath of God. But now we have been set free from the wrath of God. We have been delivered from the wrath of God. What happened to the wrath of God? Well, it's free, gone for us, but for all unbelievers it remains active and against them. So Romans chapter 1 urges us not to think that the wrath of God is just something that occurs at the end of time. No, the wrath of God is happening right now against the sinfulness and the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men. Now, I know as a Christian, you face unrighteousness in the world, don't you? As a Christian, we face ungodliness from the world in the world. It's everywhere around us. So right now, the big thing in our country is abortion, the abortion issue. Well, when are you going to deal with that, God? 
Because you don't seem to be doing anything about it. Wrong. Please don't think that. God is judging the hearts of men and women. Yes, ultimately, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in His power and His glory to judge the quick and the dead, then surely we will see that final consummation of His judgment. But in the meantime, all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men is under the judgment of God. That gives me courage. God is not sleeping in heaven. God is not apathetic in heaven. Jesus is ruling and reigning and putting his enemies under his feet one at a time. From heaven he shall come one day, it is true, to bring his great deliverance, not only for us, but also to bring great judgment upon the world. So I know that God is judging and God is saving at the same time, isn't he? He's saving sinners by his grace, by his redeeming love. And the church throughout all the ages has lived in this world under the wrath of God's being poured out upon the ungodliness of men. You know, that kind of tells me that I should have a different attitude to the world. I should be concerned for them. They're under the wrath of God. Not just going to happen then, but right now. Do I feel that concern? Do I feel that compassion, that compare for the con, uh, that care for the world that I ought to? Because they're perishing. They're not just going to perish then. They're perishing right now. They're dying in their sins. They're guilty. We ought to feel compassion. We ought to be moved by something to their plight. Because I was in that plight, and you were in that plight once upon a time. So yes, I know that there's going to be a judgment at the end, but I know that at this time Jesus is not twiddling his thumbs until the Father says, okay, you can go and get your people. No, he is, he's looking out for his people. He cares for his people. He loves his people. He reigns over the kings of this world. The kingdom of Christ has become the kingdom, uh, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he reigns forever and forever. You see, what kind of savior do you have? An impotent one? An ignorant one? No. We have a real savior who rules and who reigns with a rod of iron over the nations, who is bringing them into judgment with himself, who is doing something about their sinfulness and their sin. We cry from our perspective, how long, Lord, must we wait? How long? I am coming soon. For you, Jesus says. I'm coming for you. So what must I do? Ah, Let me not grow weary. Because it's easy to grow weary, isn't it? Easy to grow weary. Let me tell you, we grow weary more easily when we think that Jesus is not concerned. Or that Jesus is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. No. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. Because Jesus is doing his work and we must be about the Master's work now. So don't grow weary. I must rest in His grace every day, right? Rest in the grace of Christ. Be assured of the love of God and the care of God. Or to put it in another way, doesn't the Christian live above this world? I'm not, in this, I'm not of this world. I may live in it, but I live above it because of Christ. Live out the gospel, right? Live out the gospel with patience. Live out the gospel with dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Live out the gospel with joy and with confidence in the Lord. Because God is saving and God is judging. Oh, how good and gracious 
that God has saved you. Has he saved you? Because if you're not saved, you're under his judgment even now and it shall come to pass certainly one day unless we repent and believe the good news about a Savior who came to set us free from all of our sins and to bring us into his kingdom and to bring us home. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you that you have delivered us from the kingdom of this world and have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Out of a kingdom of death and darkness into a kingdom of life and light. New life. We praise you and we thank you for our salvation. It grieves us, Father, that the world is unrepentant, that the world refuses to repent, that the world refuses to believe. But you are working because you are sovereign and you are accomplishing your purposes for your people, for your church, and for your glory even in the world. And so we know, Father, that you deliver us even though we may lay down our lives like some did in Smyrna. We too may be called upon to do the same. But that is not the end of life. That is simply the beginning. And so we pray, gracious Father, that you would help us, each one, to trust you, to be confident in this world as Christians, to demonstrate our faith and trust in you, to preach the gospel, share the word. Change us, we pray. Make us like your Son. May the Holy Spirit work in each of us, we pray, so that all the glory and all the praise is yours. We pray and we ask these things. In Jesus' holy name, amen.